Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Deconstructed. I'm Ryan Grimm, and I'm probably not telling you anything you wouldn't have guessed when I say that I've struggled to get into TikTok. I started an account a while ago to try to understand it, and within days, my daughters had renamed it and taken it over, so I gave up. But I do understand how important it is now that it's reaching more than 100 million Americans, and it helps to define everyday life for perhaps a majority of people under 30. So I didn't discover this thing for myself, but one thing I can tell you is that if the Democratic primary were held today on TikTok, the result would be a landslide for Marianne Williamson. Now, she has only posted 60-some-odd videos, but has drawn more than 10 million views there. But that's just her official account. There's now a cottage industry of Marianne Williamson fan accounts that post her speeches and regularly rack up millions of views themselves. And an early poll recently showed her at over 20% with voters under 30, suggesting that the buzz on TikTok is translating into real support. So to help unpack what all that means, we're joined now by none other than the TikTok phenom herself, Marianne Williamson. Welcome to Deconstructed. <laughs> Thank you, Ryan. It's, it's great to be here, and it's always good to be with you. And so when you launched your campaign, how did you think about TikTok? And were you, are you surprised at how you've taken off there? Well, I wasn't thinking about TikTok specifically, but I was thinking about younger people. I had gone on a college tour speaking at eight colleges and universities because I thought it was important um, to understand whether or not there was a connection between myself and that younger generation. Once we actually started the campaign, people younger than myself and far more technologically adept uh, were in charge of things like TikTok. So there was this gentleman named Christian Perry, uh, all credit really goes to Christian. He was doing this account, I think Marianne for Prez or something, on TikTok or on Instagram. I'm not even one. sure why. Well, for, for months, and we just started seeing, I think it might have even been longer than months. I don't really know. But we started seeing all these cool things that people would you know, show us. And I said, well, we should call him you know, and ask him if he wants to you know, be on the team with us and work with us on the campaign. So I just kind of let Christian, there's a wonderful woman named Sandy Fisher, and she uh, makes clips. She finds clips from things I've done. And then um, the wonderful Christian makes these TikToks and Alex Furlan, who is in charge of social media, just a great group of people. And um, I put in my two cents here and there about specific content, but they're the ones who create the magic. And I know enough to just let them do their thing because they do it so well. And since I'm not on TikTok a ton, you know, people had to flag this uh, for me. So how, how did you learn that you were becoming kind of a sensation on this platform? Well, you know, Ryan, how these things are. On any given day, you might get news that you're you know, you're you're popular on this in uh, this particular in this circle of uh, you know people, and then you're very unpopular in this circle of people. So, you can't take too much of it, you know, too seriously. Because if you take all the great stuff seriously, then you have to take the the not great stuff too seriously. So, I'm grateful uh, for youthful support. I'm grateful for any support, but I'm not, you know, kidding myself that 
anything can be counted on going forward, you know? I mean, I'm, I've said a couple of times, are we still popular on TikTok? <laughs> I mean, you were popular on Thursday, are you still popular the next Monday? I'm not taking anything for granted, but I'm certainly appreciative, very grateful. And I feel seen, you know, I feel seen, and I think that's really exciting because, you know, and you and I have discussed this before, I'm fascinated by Gen Z because they're not 20th century people. They're not, their thinking is not dominated by, by some of the 20th century narratives that we just were born into. They don't see why they should live at the effect of bad ideas left over from the 20th century. And I learned things when I, when I was traveling and even since the campaign began. I'll give you an example. I remember meeting a young woman who was graduating from the University of Pennsylvania. And I asked her what she was going to do now. And she said with a totally straight face, she said, well, I can't decide. I was, I was accepted into Columbia Law, but I'm trying to decide. I might do Columbia Law and I might be a professional astrologer. <laughs> now that's a new world. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's a new world. And also I find today, and I found this the other night. So there's this article that came out about me, about Greek gods and goddesses and sort of explaining um, the campaign in terms of this Greek goddess named Eris, E-R-I-S. And I was talking to these young people and I realized that today, people in college who are studying economics, political philosophy, don't find it odd or uncomfortable in any way to discuss in the same sentence economics and political philosophy and Greek gods and goddesses. The idea that there are underlying dynamics. They've also read Jung, they've read Carl, um, uh, uh, Joseph Campbell, they've been in therapy sometimes since they were young. So this younger generation doesn't find a more whole person, holistic perspective on life um, wacky or cuckoo. What they think is that anything other than that is fractured and inadequate to the challenges of our time. And on that, we agree. And what do you, what do you think it is about your message that is really appealing to them? What, what, when, and what do you hear back from, from them? Like, which parts are they picking up that you're putting down? Well, first of all, I'm not, you know, this country is not a monolith, and no mm -hmm. generation is a monolith, no ethnic group is a monolith, so I can hardly speak about all young people. But I can say that for many of the people that are responding to my work who are young, it's from this progressive place, but it's a very different progressivism than some of the progressivism that you and I know, Ryan, because it's not it's not in any way institutionalized. I find a lot of the people on the left, the kind of people that you and I know, very, oh, I don't know, yeah, I like those ideas, but I'm not sure it should be her. This kind of like, they, they, they branded themselves as the official resistors, which really makes you question, really, I thought it was all about these principles and these ideas and these policies. Young people don't have any of that. They're not interested in any of that. They're interested in their lives. They're interested in whether or not they'll ever get under the burden of these, out from under the burden of these college loans. They're interested in whether or not the planet will be habitable for them. They're interested in whether or not they'll be able to make a livable wage and send their own kids to college and have health care. So they're, they're just not interested in the games. And they, it seems to me that they have as much healthy disrespect for formalized, institutionalized progressivism as much as they have disrespect for formalized, institutionalized neoliberalism. They're just, they're not interested. They're really thinking about how they'll be able to live their lives and thrive within them over the next few decades. And one reason I was so interested to do this interview is because the Democratic Party has just been so good the last several cycles at just missing 
phenomena that are coming its way. If you, you know, you go back to 2016, Bernie caught them completely off guard. The, the Clinton campaign, the DNC, the party itself just had no idea that he was going to resonate so much with Democratic voters until, you know, he was just right at Hillary's heels, which, okay, that's one thing. Uh, they also missed the Trump phenomenon, basically. Which is much more same, important and same significant. Year. And it's one thing to miss the first Bernie Sanders campaign. They then got caught off guard by the second Bernie Sanders campaign. Without that, to me, was stunning. You know, it's like okay, fine, you you got fooled once, no problem. But twenty twenty, he came back, almost shocked them into defeat again. You know, by, the Biden campaign managed to get all of that consolidation at the very end, and they and they hung on, but they had still missed the phenomenon. And so here, and so now, now I'm wondering, like, what other phenomena are they missing, and what do you think the party doesn't understand about younger voters? that is causing them to miss what's going on here? Well, there's a lot in what you said. The first thing I want to address is how they missed the Trump phenomenon. This is extremely dangerous. You were talking about, uh, somebody was talking the other day about AOC saying that some of this drift rightward of the Biden uh, administration is so dangerous. What they missed in 2016 is how angry people are at the fact that they're living at the effect of an unjust economic system. And my fear is that they're making the same mistake this time. Uh, sometimes when people get upset with my running, you're not taking seriously that fascists are at the door. Excuse me, I'm the one who is taking most seriously the fascists are at the door. I'm the one who's saying coming uh, to the American people at such a time as this and saying basically the economy is doing well is an outrageously stupid agenda if we want to win in 2024. What Bernie and Trump both did was that they validated people's understandable rage. The difference, of course, was that Bernie meant it and Bernie would have done something about it, about the economic conditions that are shackling people. So they missed that. And it seems to me that they're missing it this time as well. Because for 80% of the American people, the idea that the economy is doing well is directly contradictory to their visceral experience on a daily basis. However, if we look deeper into it, Ryan, is it that they missed it or is it they just don't want to see it? It is inconvenient to their own power purposes and financial purposes for them to acknowledge it, because if they were to acknowledge it, they'd have to, uh, to uh, change their entire game plan. And so it's almost like white knuckling. We can power our way through it. It's not that we don't see it, it's that we can power our way through it. So then you get to this additional, what I believe is stupidity, lack of wisdom, which is if anybody in our own ranks wants to acknowledge it, as Bernie did in 16 and 20, we will suppress them. Because even though they have such high popularity, even though what they are saying is aligned with the professed will of the majority of the American people, even though theoretically those things would actually expand our, our voting base, uh, we don't want it because we're interested in, in our club and we're going to just power through. And I think that's dangerous for the Democrats winning in 2024 and much more significantly dangerous for our country. And so... You and I talked briefly about this on, on Counterpoints where you, when you were on uh, this week, but I wanted to get your more expanded take here. So when I, when I think about your, your, your campaign and the way that you've been catching on, I think about a couple things. And one is that you, know, you, you are really r running on and championing kind of the, the Bernie Sanders agenda. Like there's, 
there's a lot of similarities between you know your critique of the corporatocracy and what you would hear uh, from Bernie Sanders. But at the same time, you have this more holistic campaign that, and this is the more controversial point I want to get your take on, that to me feels like it's tapping into some of the same energy, the same anxiety that very early Jordan Peterson, who has now become a kind of reactionary right-wing uh, phenomenon, but uh, he, he, he wasn't instantly coded as right-wing when he kind of burst onto the scene in the, mid, in the mid-2010s with his whole 12 rules for life and urging people to clean their room and get their act together and that sort of thing. You know, he's, he has channeled them in, in a different direction. But I feel like the media missed the phenomenon of Jordan Peterson and, and missed kind of what it said about young people at the time that he could catch on in, in the way that he did. And I feel like you're speaking to that, that same kind of uh, void and speaking to that same anxiety while also then coupling it with a more kind of social democratic Bernie Sanders style of politics that, it, that links the two together, that says that the, the answer is not to just you know become victims and blame whatever conspiracies are, are being put upon you by these Davos elites, it's to actually collectively, you know, fight for this other agenda. What what's your what's your take on that read? Well, Ryan, my career started long before Jordan Peterson's did, or at least in the public realm. So a lot of the things that you're pointing to that Jordan Peterson was saying early in his career about how we do need to rise up within ourselves, qualities of our own personhood need to demonstrate greater maturity, uh, that we've had a long post-adolescence in our society because there was not the kind of coming of age uh, for several generations that there had been for generations before us. I was talking about those things and writing about those things for decades, actually, uh, before Jordan Peterson was even speaking. So. He was in, when he did start talking, it was very much uh, within a realm of, of conversation that I had been speaking into for decades. Um, I agree with you, he has taken a... On that point, what do you think made his approach take on a political valence, whereas yours was sort of proto-political back, you know, you, like you said, you have been you know, writing, philosophizing, thinking, talking in this way for decades, but it wasn't really coded as politics as we understand it. The way that Peterson very quickly did become coded as a political actor rather than a kind of cultural or analytic, you know, psychoanalytical actor. Well, I don't know that much about his career. All I know is that early on, I liked some of what he said, and later on, I was horrified by the things I heard him say. But what the trajectory was that took him from A to B, I don't know. Um, I think, oddly enough, on the right, there's almost more openness to somebody talking outside the political boxes. Um, this should not be the case. Uh, when I was growing up, Martin Luther King, Bobby Kennedy, uh, spoke in soulful terms. Um, and today, uh, at least among Democrats, there is often this, this distrust of anything that goes outside the box of this very secularized um, analysis of political dynamics, even though to any intelligent observer, it's so obvious that's not working. It's not, take that alone is not taking us where we need to go. So 
I don't know, you know, I'm a writer, I've been at this for a long time. There's a level past which it doesn't really concern you what other people are saying, what other people are writing, what other people are doing, what's happening in popular culture. I um, I have my own career and I've done my own writing and the only person the only person's trajectory I really know much about is my own. Well, I guess what I mean not is not on that trajectory, but what changed about our society is what I'm trying to get at in the 2010s that enabled mm -hmm. his type of uh, whatever he was doing to be understood as political rather than as kind of cultural. Well, he became specifically political. Yeah, maybe he brought but that in. But when he in, became yeah. specific, yeah, he brought it in. And people didn't say, how dare you? Stay in your mm -hmm. lane. Because in his world, they weren't doing that. In my world, it's like when I started talking about political things, stay in your lane. How dare you? Even though I wrote my first political book, was published in 1998. And I wrote Politics of Love as a kind of compendium to my campaign, the way all candidates do. Uh, Andrew Yang did. Every, everybody did. Kamala had a book. Pete had a book, I think. But only in my case is that she's doing it to sell books. I mean, the left has its own mishigas. The left has its own smug, arrogant dismissal of anything that isn't the conversation they've already been having and that isn't officially sanctioned by their establishment leadership. It's really sad to think that the independent thinkers are on the other side. It does feel like if you read the comments on TikTok on a lot of uh, the videos that, that are that either you've posted or that have been posted by other people about you, you see a ton of people saying, what I really like about her is that she's willing to criticize both parties. And that seems to earn, uh, that seems to earn trust in them. Is that what you mean about there being less space on the left for that sort of internal criticism? There's this codependent relationship that many Democrats have with the DNC that you don't see uh, Republicans have with the RNC. Um, so yes, this idea that you see it right now with what's happening with the president and um, the primary. You know, we, it's like some voice on high of the Democratic establishment leadership has decided we are going with Joe. I mean, that's not the way it's supposed to happen. The DNC, for instance, is supposed to stay in the background. You're supposed to have an election. That's what primaries are. Then the voters, hello, the voters decide who the candidate will be. And that's when the DNC is supposed to come in. But there's been this decision made on high. A bunch of guys, what, smoking cigars like it's 100 years ago. They've decided that it's going to be Biden. Clear the field. We'll change the primary schedule if we have to. We'll have to do whatever. And you can tell it, it, it's... And, and a lot of Democrats seem to be um, just falling in line as though the DNC knows better. I don't know how you can look at the last several years and say the DNC necessarily knows better. What are we talking about here? This is the, you know, I believe that if the DNC had kept their fingers off the scale in 2016, I don't know who would have won. I don't know if Hillary would have won or Bernie would have won. It would have been probably a close contest. One of them would have won the uh, primary the primaries in 2016, but whomever it was, if the if Democrats had all gotten the sense, wow, this was a fair race, then I don't think Trump would have ever been president. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How how can you claim to be the party that is the the conduit for for the protection of democracy if you yourself are so wary of the democratic process? And I'll tell you something: candidate suppression is a form of voter suppression. If you're going to make it clear that you're going to do everything possible to keep someone's voice from being in the mix through your influence on mainstream media and so forth because you find it inconvenient, that's a form of candidate suppression. 
And I think that the fact that I'm willing to name that, you know, somebody said to me, or I saw online, I think, somebody saying um, about me, she's committing political suicide. And I laughed, I guffawed, because what political career do I have to kill? <laughs> you know, so I'm not coming at it from what you're supposed to say. You know, a writer and people in the careers like mine, we don't wake up in the morning and, and ask ourselves what we are supposed to say. Uh, including, you know, what's supposed to sell a book, what's supposed to get people at my lectures. I'm, that's not the career space I come from. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I wanted to play for you a clip that's been circulating on TikTok and get your uh, reaction to it. People these days talk about how traumatized they are by the Trump phenomenon. I'm just so traumatized by it. Um, Do you think the people who walked across the bridge at Selma were not traumatized? Everybody's saying, oh, I'm so anxious. It's just, this whole thing has me so anxious, really. What about those women standing up in Iran right now? We need to toughen up, buttercups. Everybody in this room, however pushed down we are, it is nothing compared to how pushed down the Iranians are right now, and they are showing up. So I think we have gotten to a point where we're coddling our neuroses a little too much right now. We need to say, meditate, take a shower, pray in the morning, and kick ass in the afternoon. This is not to minimize the pain. Sometimes you call your girlfriends, you call the people in your life, can I share my pain? And then that call is over, and the person who loves you on that call says, promise me you're going to get out there this afternoon and show them what you got. And I was intrigued to see this one circulating, because to me, it's one of the clearest expressions of you linking kind of the, the collective politics of struggle against the, the villains that you identify with the way that that struggle can then kind of help you yourself, you know, emancipate you from the anxieties that, that you're facing. First, when you saw that uh, circulating, uh, were you like, great, I, this, is, this is the kind of thing I do want out there? Were you surprised that that, that clip resonated? No. Listen, it's the kind of thing I've been saying for years. Like I said, I've been saying for years that we had a long post-adolescence, this sort of uh, pathologizing every heartbreak. Do you know what I'm saying? It has. I've been talking about this for years, that sometimes, you know, shit happens. Sometimes life is hard, but this is how we grow up. I've been particularly concerned uh, with people in their 20s. I say to these young people all the time, the 20s are hard, but they're not a mental illness. Uh, individuating, becoming mature, evolving, becoming real grown-ups, becoming um, responsible for your country, for your democracy, for your family, for your planet. It's a maturation process. We all go through it, and it's not always easy. So 
in order to answer the challenges of our times. We're going to have to do more than do certain things differently. We're going to have to be certain things differently. And so I've been saying for a long time, the fact that that was picked up and that it's put, you know, it's interesting, that was a, um, that was the Chicago Humanities Festival where I was in conversation with Nina Turner on stage. So it was interesting when I saw you play that the other day. But it's the kind of thing I've been saying for a very long time. You know, in the book that I published called Healing the Soul of America in 1998, uh, I, I wrote a lot about uh, Mahatma Gandhi and Martin Luther King and Mahatma Gandhi's um, philosophy of nonviolence which then Dr. King had gone to India, he studied those principles, and he brought them back to the United States for um, application to the struggle for civil rights in the 1960s. The essence of nonviolent philosophy is that who you are is as important as what you do, because in the words of Gandhi, the end is inherent in the means. Now, if you look at just traditional political activism, you might say um, the end justifies the means. Gandhi said, no, the end is inherent in the means. Or another way of putting it is everything you do is a reflection of the consciousness with which we do it. If we want to fundamentally change the civilization, we're going to have to fundamentally change. And we can't just be wimpy. We can't just be, you know, I, I've said it for, for so long. We, we can't just identify the problems in our past. We have to identify with the problem solvers. Don't just look at abolition. Think about what it had to have been in those days to be an abolitionist. Don't just look at women's suffrage. Think what you had to be in those days to be a woman suffragist. Don't just look at the civil rights movement. Think what it had to, you had to be to be in the civil rights movement. Let's not be the first generation to wimp out on doing what it takes to put our country back on track when we have swerved. Now, this is slightly trans tangential. Did you read the Betzloss book that came out a few months ago about Lincoln called There Was Light? No. Uh -uh. Okay. So one of the things I, I came to understand from reading that book is the difference between the provocateur and the activist and the politician. So the provocateur takes something like like slavery, okay? So the provocateur were the John Browns. The provocateurs were the people yelling about, about slavery long before there was any popular listening for it. Just screaming and yelling about how wrong it was, how bad it was, at a time when hardly anyone would listen, much less embrace the message. And so the provocateur is willing to take a lot of hits and not very much approval because you're yelling it into the wind at a time when very few want to hear it. Yeah. Okay, but they make the space for the phase of the activist. The activist, that space having been open, the activist can come along and actually do all the traditional activism necessary to, to start not just planting the seeds, because the provocateur planted them, but in order to start really building a field of, of political possibility. The politician comes in after that. And if you look at Lincoln, Lincoln was not early to the abolitionist movement, even though there's a famous line where he had said early in his life after he saw, he had seen, as many people who were, many people who were, um, who became abolitionists had some personal experience. They saw slave trading, they saw enslaved people in chains, something that really had this profound impact on them, the kind of amazing grace uh, phenomenon. He is quoted as having said when he was young about slavery, if I ever get a chance to hit it, I'm going to hit it hard. But he remained, you know, in the Missouri Compromise, he was trying to hit a compromise, it took mm -hmm. a while. But he is the one, first you had the provocateur, 
then you have the activists, and then you have someone like a Lincoln, Roosevelt was a similar character, who are able to come in, say, okay, it's time. And they can harness the consensus of enough people. That's their role. They're not the early provocateur or even necessarily the activists, but they are the ones who bring in a different phase of, of possibility because of their ability to work with, with a population in order to bring the change into manifestation. That fascinates me, the different phases that we go through. And I think that we're at a fascinating phase right now. I don't think Americans, I think there's a consensus of Americans who are no longer in denial about what trouble this country is in. And I think a lot of that comes from these young people. They, they, they're, not, they're not buying the illusion that things are better than they are. They understand. And I, think, and I think COVID had something to do with this too for a lot of people, Ryan, that they really saw how the system operates and how many of the institutions that they might have thought would protect them at such a time made it clear we would rather you drop dead than in any way undercut our financial bottom line. So now the issue is how do we take this moment and turn it into an inflection moment? Because I don't think that we are going to remain where we are. It will not, things will not remain where they are. We're either going down or we're going up. We're either in a downward spiral or we are going to come together and create the energy for an upward spiral. And I believe that young people are heading that movement. There's an audacity and a rambunctiousness that we desperately need uh, in, in, in the service of justice and peace and true prosperity and democracy in this country. And as, as you think about it in those terms, how do you think of your own role? What, what, what is it that made you want to move from the kind of activist to the politician? Well, I think that the, you know, because I come from the role of spirituality and, and religious pursuit and interest and a kind of non-denominational clergy of sorts. The non-denominational or, or institutional clergy, for that matter, kind of hovers right above um, what's going on. And you see it from a larger perspective. So you have a freedom. If you're on a podium where people are expecting a spiritual or religious conversation or a bima or a pulpit, you are allowed to, to speak in terms of prophetic vision. Look at Martin Luther King. You know, if you read, when I was younger, I read every biography of Martin Luther King that I could get my hands on. And I remember what they all said. They said, on the third Sunday of January in 1960, Martin Luther King went from a religious leader who spoke on political terms to a political leader a social and political movement leader who spoke from the, um, from the space of spiritual understanding. One of my favorite quotes of Martin Luther King is, any religion that purports to care about the soul of a man but doesn't address the economic conditions that oppress him and the political conditions that strangle him is a political, is, is a moribund religion awaiting burial. There is no, and, and I, I might have gotten the words a little bit messed up there, but that's the gist of it. And I have felt that same yearning in my heart at a certain point. You know, there's no religious or spiritual tradition anywhere that gives any of us a pass on addressing the suffering of other sentient beings. So at a certain point for me, it was simply a matter of coming out of the pulpit or you know, out of the library or the, the book publishing, out of the bookstore, 
uh, onto the streets in a way. And um, I think that at this point, electoral politics is an aspect of the streets. So in order to co-opt the support that Bernie Sanders had, the Democratic Party establishment co-opted a decent amount of his agenda, not as much as some of his supporters would have liked, but enough to kind of bring people uh, toward Biden in the November 2020 election. And so if let's say you were a, a political consultant who's been hired by the DNC, who has noticed uh, that you're doing extraordinarily well on TikTok and with young voters, and they're nervous that you're, they're going to be caught off guard in 2024 like they were by uh, Bernie in 2016 and 2020. They say, okay, what do we do to blunt her momentum? How do we co-opt? How do we steal enough of her agenda uh, that we can bring her people in? And what, 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 what advice uh, would, you, would you give to them if you were put in that situation? Uh, the whole thing is sort of ridiculous, isn't it? I will tell you this. There's, they have this woman on TikTok now that they've sent out. I call her fake tattoo girl. She's a girl who obviously has fake tattoos. So it's like sent from central casting to look like a TikTok inter- influencer. She didn't even have a, uh, a TikTok account previous to this. So she's out there, you know, she's the designated one to... Uh, make it like I'm this awful person that uh, nobody should listen to. So that's that's what they're doing right now. Is that's amazing. To, how's that? Uh, yeah. How's fake TikTok girl doing? Oh, she's getting a lot of people. She's getting a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, of course, I want to go out there and talk to fake TikTok girl, but I'm told that I should not do that. Um, <laughs> if people, if they really wanted to absorb um, some of the sort of moral component of my message. Uh, they would be looking to Reverend Barber. Um, Just as the economics of Bernie Sanders have been so influential to me, um, Reverend Barber and the lineage, the the spiritual, religious, and political lineage of Reverend Barber has meant a lot to me as well. I think we have in our midst um, truly a great genius, a great uh, religious genius and intellectual genius. He's he's just amazing. Um, But, you know, he's... He's a man. So. Uh, and so, and while I've got you here, I also wanted to uh, ask you to respond to uh, the, the scrutiny that you've gotten in the press um, as, you've, as you've kind of risen a little bit. And particularly, you know, a, I think the article was in Politico talking about uh, your, your performance as a boss. You had a, a bunch of um, former uh, staff of yours saying that uh, they, they, didn't, they didn't like working for you, that you were, tough, that you were, that you were too tough um, on, on staff, basically. Um, what's, what, you know, have you been hearing about that, uh, from people on the ground and how do you, how do you, how do you respond to them and how, how would you respond to that, those claims? Is that scrutiny really? Or is that just smear and hit? Which is not to say that none of it's true. It's not to say I haven't gotten angry at the office or all of that. I mean, I, I have at times gotten angry at the office as many people have, including, political leaders, certainly including the men who run Washington. That's not to justify times that I've raised my voice or had a tantrum because work wasn't done or whatever. Um, So, you know, I think people with the eye for understanding what those things are about knows what a hit piece is. And, And, you know, I've been a bitch at the office at times. And, you know, if that's the worst they have on me, I should be okay. And where, where does the campaign go from here? Are you seeing, uh, are you seeing that support 
that you've generated among young people translate into kind of small contributions in the same way uh, that, that Sanders did. The thing that really helped his campaign take off, as I'm sure you remember, I think he raised something like a million bucks in the first 24 hours of his campaign back in, back in 2015, which then you know, gives you the chance to hire up and, and, and strategize and travel in a, in a real way. Are you seeing that happen yet? No, I haven't seen anything like that. And um, one of the disappointments to me has been how many people on the left, Ryan, have actually been out there saying, don't send her money. It's unbelievable to me. Hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we have raised enough that I'm able to have a staff that's holding together what we're doing right now. Um, I wish we did have a million dollars in the bank. I wish I could um, uh, staff up much more because really that is what it's about, you know. It really is. So how many people do you have on your social media team and your digital team and on the ground in South Carolina, in Nevada, in Michigan, in uh, New Hampshire, and so forth? I mean, it really is about, about staff, about the people who work for you. Um, but we have enough for now. I hope that more people will realize in a campaign like mine, obviously not backed by corporate dollars, um, Small donations are everything. I hope that more people, and particularly more young people, more people who, who believe in the message of this campaign and realize it, or who feel for themselves that this is a message that should be out there, I hope they don't underestimate how much a $3 donation can make a difference. Uh, it's those $3, those $5, particularly people who are like recurring $5 a month. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be the thirty-three hundred, you know, dollar uh, donors, or the thousand dollars, or the the five hundred, or or a hundred, or or even fifty. You know, that twenty-five dollars, that ten dollars, that five dollars, that three dollars. That's what fuels a campaign like this. And I, I, I hope that more people will get into the habit of uh, financial giving. Obviously, the fact that this is about money is itself the problem. The undue influence of money on our political system is the cancer underlying all the other cancers. But what you have is all that dark money, all those multi-millions given, uh, dark money, uh, corporate money. You have a system of legalized bribery in this country. The only way to override that is through the power of the people. And that has got to include, at this time, the dollars of the people. Um, and, and Bernie certainly demonstrated that this can be done. Um, he raised tremendous amounts of money, um, and they were small-dollar donations. So no, I mean, between what the, you know, the mainstream, the, you know, the invisibilization by the mainstream media, the hits by the DNC and the establishment, the fairy dust about me, I'm wacky, I'm mean, I can't, I, they kind of can't make up their mind. Am I a wacky fairy princess who just walks around like this, or am I some awful mean person, a bitch, you know? So they don't seem, they seem to flip back and forth between the two. Um, but the point is that those caricatures and those mischaracterizations um, do have an effect, you know. They, they throw dust into people's eyes. But on TikTok and elsewhere, there are more and more people who are saying, you know, I'm interested in her policies. I'm interested in her policies. I'm interested in her analysis uh, of this country and where we can go. If, if you're going to tell me she's got a spirituality that you don't like, you know, Ryan, I, I say to myself all the time, the president has stood up in church. He's a Catholic, right? And he has stood up in church, and how many thousands of times has he affirmed his faith in the virgin birth? 
Now, nobody thinks the president doesn't know where babies come from. <laughs> so when people speak in metaphysical terms, this doesn't mean that they, they don't understand how the world works. And then on the other end, yeah, you know, I'm sorry if I've ever been in the office, which I think I have been. I clearly have been, actually. But that person described in articles like that, no. So I'm not a perfect person, but I think that, you know, I'm not running for sainthood. I'm running for president. The, the point about the, there being uh, less fundraising and people on the left encouraging people not to give is, fa is a fascinating political development. And I wonder if some of it has to do with the way that the kind of economy of the media has, has reoriented itself in the eight, eight years or so since Bernie Sanders ran. Back in 2015 or 2016, there wasn't the same type of creator economy where you had so many kind of YouTubers, podcasters, substackers, and other kind of independent journalists who were really relying on people, giving them $5 a month to, so that they could, you know, maintain, you know, their voice in the public square and maintain their independence from uh, corporate, corporate media. But today, it's almost as if the kind of media that ecosystem that has developed that, that supports kind of left candidates they're now in competition with those candidates for that same money, those same small dollars. And I, I wonder if that's, uh, I'm just thinking through this now, but I wonder if that is, is, is going to play a role in the future about how this, how this develops. Like it could, it could be unfortunately in the interests of people to tell their audience, don't, don't give money to these people. Well, yeah, I love how all these anti-capitalists act like such capitalists. This is my brand. Right. This is my brand and I don't want to, you know, I'm protecting my brand. Uh, it's it's quite illuminating. It's quite eye opening. Um, and I think also many people on the left, when it comes to me, seem to resent that I didn't enter the room through the same door that they did. Um, I didn't kiss the rings that they think, you know, there's one left wing popular voice. And I heard him on a major platform the other day say, Marianne Williamson doesn't know anything about the working people. She doesn't know anything about the working class. This is a man whose entire career has been being a professor at Ivy League colleges, which he attended. I spent six years on the pulpit of a church in Warren, Michigan. Maybe he would like to look up that church in Warren, Michigan, where I spoke every Sunday to 3,500 people. And during the week, every day of the week was working with those individuals and their families. And he has the audacity to get on a left-wing uh, platform and talk about how I know nothing about the working people. How does he know what I've done with my life? How does he know who I've been with or what I've done? But uh, yeah, it's been pretty, um, pretty eye-opening to see how many people who, who I know are, are aligned with me as I am aligned with them on political issues who, um, find me not up to their standards, uh, even though they have no idea uh, who I am. But whatever. You know, it's funny to me, a lot of people who would think of themselves as not easily disinformed sure have been disinformed when it comes to me. Well, fascinating new world uh, that we're in. And Marianne, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. I appreciate it, Ryan. Thank you. That was Marianne Williamson, and that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of The Intercept. Our producer is Jose Olivares. Our supervising producer is Laura Flynn. The show was mixed by William Stanton. 
Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Roger Hodge is the Intercept's editor-in-chief, and I'm Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash gifts. See, I was just talking about how everybody needs your money now to support us. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please go and leave us a rating or a review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us additional feedback, email us at podcast at theintercept.com. Thanks so much, and I'll see you soon. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code GLOW.